0: Welcome to the Third Wheel Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series exploring all things ESG. I'm Olga Klimchak, partner in our employment, industrial relations and safety practice. My focus is advisory, strategic planning, disputes and regulatory concerns, and increasingly in the ESG space. It's my pleasure to be hosting this episode with you today, taking the wheel from hosts Tim Stutt and Mel Debenham, and to unpack. Everything relating to ESG from the Future of Work report, I'm joined by Natalie Gaspar and Xu Jingku, partners and colleagues from the Employment, Industrial Relations and Safety team. Welcome to the third wheel. I'll let you oh. introduce yourself. Thanks, Olga. Good to get that wheel
1: off Tim and Mel and join you on the program. So hi, everyone. I'm Natalie Gaspar. I'm also an employment partner. I do a bit of everything, but I, I really uh, enjoy and focus on the bargaining and industrial disputes.
2: Thanks, Nat, and I'll get to let me come on. Uh, My name's Xu Chinku. My particular area of expertise is really in that general employment space, uh, trying to manage matters before or after they become litigious. Uh, A lot of my focus uh, over recent times has been uh, in the whistleblowing space, both that pre-advisory and then uh, into that dispute based uh, area as well.
0: Well, thanks both. And I think to kick us off, our listeners will probably want to know a little bit about the Future of Work report and its theme this year. So it's a fairly extensive research exercise. Shu, do, do you want to take us a bit through the background?
2: Sure, let me bore you with the facts and figures. It's our third report uh, since 2019. So now what we're getting is that longevity in terms of the content of the report. What we try and do to keep it consistent though, is that it's a survey of about 500 decision makers globally across uh, a number of sectors. Companies that are chosen to participate are those which have more than a 1,000 employees and more than $250 million in revenue. The focus of the interviewees and participants are board members, senior management, or managers involved in making the workforce decisions. Since 2019, if we can remember back that far, we've now traversed uh, COVID-19 pandemic which resulted in the new ways of working and the social movements which have come across. So we've seen, um, just to name a few, Black Lives Matter, Me Too. uh, And what we've charted is really the growing influence of employee activism. So the 2013 report, uh, now what we're seeing is hopefully the post-pandemic era, if there's one thing that we can look forward to is um, coming out of that. Uh, What we're seeing, though, is a lot of economic um, disruption. What is consistent across the board is... um, the impact of rising inflation and that the cost of living uh, pressures that are being felt by people across the world uh, seem to have had an impact and perhaps dampened uh, employees' appetites for challenging issues uh, in the workplace. But this is probably only a temporary reprieve. What we're going to see I think as employers have to shape and navigate the new norms of working life particularly around hybrid and flexible working. I think they're going to face many more pitfalls in terms of how much and how often do they encourage staff to return to the office without uh, losing talent and how they capture and um, maintain the productivity benefits of technology um, without uh, provoking employee concerns, I think are gonna be the chief issues that arise.
0: Right. And it's, I think, really important that we now have a number of years worth of data and we're starting to see those trends change as both employers and employees respond to those political, economic and social um, changes. Um, and interestingly, the I think we're also seeing a similar approach with shareholder activism in AGMs, where there's also been a bit of a dampening yeah. from what I hear from our corporate colleagues, um, and in this episode, though, we're going to unpack some of those key ESG-related findings that you mentioned, um, Shu. So I think uh, those include the, the rise in that demand for workplace health and wellbeing support and reputational risk that lie from corporate social responsibility that might trigger that activism. So let's start there. Um, as Shu mentioned, Nat, the economic headwinds have sort of dampened employee activism, activism and from what I hear also shareholder activism but not for long. What are your thoughts Nat?
1: Yeah look thanks Olga so our survey found that 81% of employers agreed that the economic downturn which Sue had mentioned had reduced the risk of activism in the last 18 months but more than half so about 59% expect activism to rise in the future. Um, and what they say is the trigger for that is the growing cost of living. So, as nearly as many, about 40% anticipate activism around pay and benefit inequality. So, that's interesting, but to be honest, it it doesn't really come as a surprise. So, we've got a raft of new laws globally um, promoting pay transparency. So, we've got the EU's Pay Transparency Directive and, of course, there's been some amendments um, where we're from to Australia's Fair Work Act. So, given those, employers um, might be and will be required to open their books in a way that might give staff and other stakeholders the ammunition, I suppose, um, to bring about a new way of employee-driven business change. Um, So, some of the changes in Australia in particular prevent pay secrecy clauses for employees. So what that means is if you are paying people differently within your professional services staff, um, there's gonna be conversations about comparing pay, That that's just a necessary consequence of that. So um, in the previous reports, the activism triggers, I think as you alluded to, Olga, have been actual or perceived discrimination and demands for more robust corporate social responsibility agenda. So, that continues to provoke anxiety, but um, it's fallen slightly in urgency since 2021. So, it's like this Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? Like, you, you have the, you know, the nice to have, um, but, but the reality is if you can't pay your bills, if you've got this mortgage and the like, it, it just sort of falls down. So, I think um, the survey respondents are, are you know, recognising that divorce, and so this probably reflect the belief that the economic worries will force workers to focus on their wallets. Understandably so. Um, And it might suggest some employers believe also that they've done a good job. And um, they've adequately addressed these issues in recent years. So when asked about the biggest reputational risk their company faces, about half, so 53% of employers point to sustainability and environmental issues, and 34% say corporate social responsibility. So both areas are more cited this year than in 2021, which is interesting. But about a quarter, so 27% say employee pressure to take a stand on social and environmental issues have fallen in the last two years. So about half of respondents, again 53%, this is interesting, say that generational differences in employees' beliefs and values make it hard to meet expectations on ESG issues, and nearly as many, 46%, see Gen Z's entrance into the workforce as increasing the likelihood of activism around these topics. So indeed the pressure is such that Many see a bright side to regulation. About 71% of our respondents expect regulation on ESG issues will actually reduce the risk of staff activism by clarifying employer responsibilities. So interesting sort of take on that. But, you know, look, what do we take from all that? I think we would say that you'd caution against complacency in this space. There's been a raft of new sustainability reporting standards that mean... I think businesses will be more open to scrutiny than ever, Olga.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, Nat. I think that regulation in that uh, ESG space of social matters relating to Me Too and uh, racial matters, There has been a lot of uh, additional regulation with uh, the positive duty and so on, and that has resulted in employers responding to those regulation needs. So that's consistent with what you were saying. But you're right, there has been a lot of work done internationally around reporting. So the International Sustainability Standards Board was created, and this year they released new reporting guidance, which really the purpose of that project was to bring all the different types of reporting standards of all the different jurisdictions around the world and make it more streamlined and consistent um, so that people knew what they were to be reporting against. The first lot of guidance is is general principles relating to the value chain of corporations and climate reporting. But they've said that the next list um, of priorities relates to human capital and relationships. So this is where we we'll see a lot of the employment-related matters coming in. Um, and these reporting uh, standards have also been mirrored in some jurisdictions in the US, the EU and the UK. We're seeing a lot of stand- sustainability standards being developed as well. Um, so I think that Australia will probably follow in those footsteps um, and it's only a matter of time. Um, with that overlay, shoe, um, where we're talking about transparency, Um, due diligence and mandatory reporting, um, combined with Australia being on the cusp of some of these profound legislative changes, how do you think employers are responding?
2: Really interesting, Olga, and I think to an extent the Australian uh, experience will be led by what we see already happening um, overseas. But what we've seen um, at the moment, at least from our uh, reporting, uh, is that there are a significant number of employers that are placing moderate to high restrictions on employee activism which is now at uh, unprecedented 97%. Now, modest change from 2021 but still an upward increase and it's definitely a striking increase when you look at in 2019 53% reported no restrictions mm. whatsoever. So this is really um a change in how employers are dealing with uh, employee activism now it has to be said that there are limits on what employers can do in terms of trying to influence impact or s- prevent employees from speaking their mind about workplace issues i think there are just so many different avenues that are available that it's never going to be possible to um, stifle debate And I think that risk of trying to prevent uh, debate, therefore meaning we don't have an issue, actually is going to lead to more protest uh, and more action and more activism um, because there will be means that employers can't monitor or engage in, which will then have a much more potentially damaging um, um, outcome also there are limit there are limitations which are which vary by jurisdiction by jurisdiction in terms of what employers can do in terms of restrictions particularly um, for example in EMEA employers can enforce few restrictions beyond prohibiting speech or conduct that damages the employer's reputation so quite limited um, protections there which mean that individuals have more freedom. Now there are other restrictions um, in terms of limits on protest or collective action but those tend to be imposed by governments as um, policy um, positions. What I think this means though is for employers who are faced with the inevitability of activism, a growing number of employees are actually encouraging employees to raise those issues in-house. What we've seen in the last two years is really a sharp increase in the number of respondents who say that they don't participate in external employee forums, but instead what they do is have established internal formal representative committees. That's up to 35%, which were previously in 2021, it was 19%. It's also accompanied by the increase in the number of um, employers who have created official forums for employee consultation, which is now at 81%. So there's so many in-house options now for employees to be able to Uh, meaningfully engage with those um, avenues that are available I think there's a recognition that employers know that they can't stop the debate uh, from happening instead I think they want to engage with it now there are some issues associated with just having an open free-for-all in terms of what is shared and so employers will have to have some guardrails that they put in in relation to um, that commentary so it's making sure that they uh, manage respectful debate um, that occurs and perhaps what is even more interesting for me is that it's not just employers who have this interest in having issues raised and handled through existing channels. What we see, particularly um, in unionised and those areas places which have works councils, is they also want those issues to be raised through representative committees. It helps to ensure that those bodies remain the voice of the workforce and are not sidestepped or overshadowed by other groups or other ways, um, which have a talent for garnering perhaps attention on social media or other uh, perhaps le- less well documented and arranged manners um, for uh, having engagement.
0: Thanks, you. Such an interesting topic. Um, I want to pivot now, though, and talk about another key finding: um, the concept of well-being in the workplace. And of employers say staff have demanded greater support for their health and well-being since the pandemic, with 54% saying that employee well-being will be a focus of substantial changes to their workforce strategy in the next three to five years. So that's actually a very big increase from the 36% who said the same in 2021. Um, In Australia, we've seen a big focus on well-being through safety regulators, um, being really active on psychosocial hazards. And that's seen a lot of employers looking at workplace design policies and procedures to mitigate such risks. I've also seen in bargaining um, employers looking at wellbeing leave as an additional type of leave. So, Nat, when employers say they're focused on wellbeing, there's a wide range of things that they mean. What have you seen?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good call out. Olga and I, I do think this is one of the more sort of profound changes given you know she was saying we've now got some longitudinal data it's not surprising in a post-pandemic environment um, for there to be demands for employer well-being and I think we're moving to this state now where employers have you know, like a paternalistic or a maternalistic sort of relationship with their employees and so in light of that there's not really a one-size-fits-all and it does vary by location and um by industry as well. But here's some of the stuff we have seen. So in Australia and in parts of EMEA the concept of workplace wellbeing can encompass a, a full scope of psychosocial considerations. So that can be things like finding fulfilment at work, to supporting employees' gender expression, for example. So we've also seen in the US um, a wellbeing program may, may now also focus on providing employees with mental health support. And again that those that those are pretty commonplace, everything ranging from in-house like psych- um, psychologist support to, you know, yoga at your desk programs and the like. So, I think there's different regional differences between what we're seeing and, as I said, industry def- um differences as well. But employers really are recognising and embracing a range of wellbeing initiatives across all the markets surveyed. And part of that is that regulator focus that you described, so the stick, but, but there's also the carrot as well. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of science that says a happy workforce uh, is a more productive one. And in that fight for talent that we had in this post-COVID world, it's it's actually unsurprising. So, The vast majority of our clients surveyed, so about 90% of them, said that they had either already adopted or planning on adopting some policy sort of considerations to enhance employee wellbeing. So the most implemented initiatives are providing space for employees to discuss work issues. So exactly the sort of stuff that Sue was describing before, which had already been taken up by about 67% of respondents. Um, and also I think what's really key is providing frontline managers with the training to support wellbeing is this sort of first triage point, I suppose. So that that's at about 65%, our survey showed. Um, and the prevalence of the wellbeing programs suggest employers are going above and beyond employee demand. Um, so well, I, why are they so keen? Just over a third see wellbeing as a significant activism risk. So again, that sticks. So their motives might be defensive. Um, you know, and, and as we foreshadowed in some jurisdictions, there's, there's legislation demanding increased attention to employee mental health by forcing their hand. But, you know, as we said, and um, (laughs) the respondents to this survey, they're eagerly pursuing wellbeing because they see it as a win-win. It's an opportunity to improve employee satisfaction and engagement without making the costlier changes to pay and benefits.
0: Yeah, that's um, interesting. As you were talking, Matt, I was just reflecting, there was a very recent report by WorkSafe um, which talked about the wellbeing initiatives in the Western Australian mining industry over the last 10 years. And one of the things that that report said was that um, 64% of participants expressed confidence in the effectiveness of their company's um, system. But um, a lot of them thought that the um companies had effectively imposed top-down um, approaches and you mentioned you know some of these are paternalistic or maternalistic and I think that theme of consultation that has come through the future of work report is really important in this space as well that employees in order to feel that confidence you know they want to know that they're being listened to and I think that's a key aspect. Um, Sue, do you have any reflections on wellbeing initiatives?
2: I think it's picking up on both the points that that you and Nat raised, which is that that we will have more and more regulation and that will set the minimum standards. But the leading organisations will be doing so much more than that Uh, and it will be partly defensive, but I think it will be more that they see this as a way that they will provide for their staff, which means increased productivity, reduced turnover, all of those things, um, which will give them a edge uh, in an increasingly um, competitive uh, environment. So that's where I think we will see a lot more effort um, put in. But I think employers should remember that um, there will this comes with risks, and that not everything that they will do will come off perfectly. Uh, and so they will have some um, ones that don't work as well. but that's not a reason to stop looking at this area, investing in this area. It's to learn the lessons and then um, keep going. And particularly in that space of where we might have unintended consequences, where the idea will be that they will try and implement something, and they will find that the initiatives are not well received or well picked up, uh, and there may be some issues that arise in terms of perceived uh, favouritism over one group of employees over another. Um, But as you said, Olga, this will be about engaging with the workforce and getting their views as to what is it that they need um, and being open and willing to consider those options, uh, implementing them and see how they go.
0: Mm -hmm. Some great advice there. Thanks both to you, Shu, and Nat for your insights and for joining us today on the third wheel. And we usually close with an interesting fact from the world of ESG. And I was thinking as we were talking that one of the key aspects of wellbeing is to feel connected. And we recently had an opportunity to catch up in person, which was wonderful. Um, This interesting fact relates to that aspect. So the first ever transatlantic flight using 100% sustainable aviation fuel has been completed. The flight path was the staple Heathrow to JFK on a Boeing 787. And it follows a pledge from the UK government last year to deliver the first ever net zero emissions transatlantic flight of this nature by the end of 2023. So you're probably thinking, what did the fuel consist of? Well, sustainable aviation fuel producers um, uh, estimate that the result of the emissions is about 85% relative to conventional fuels. And what it's made of is a blend of 88% hydro processed esters and fatty acids fatty acids. So what that means is waste fats, oils and greases as feedstock and then synthetic aromatic kerosene. So what that means is plant sugars. Sounds pretty innovative to us. Um, I also urge you to read the Future of Work report. There's so much more that we could have touched on today um, from remote and flexible working developments to the use of automation and AI. So we'll post a link in our episode note. Uh, As ever, thank you
2: for listening. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.